He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Okay, we're back. It's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm Jack Heald, the talking hairdo. I've always wanted to introduce myself that way. I really like it. Um, and today's guest, Dr. Blake Linskis. Phil, set the table for us here with Dr. Linskis, and then we're going to find out a little bit more about this guy and why he's on the show. Yes. So Dr. Brian Lenskis uh, is... Uh, I'm sorry. What did I say? You said Blake, but it's all right. <laughs> that, you should change your name. That's what I might change it. I like that. Blake's a good uh, name. After like all that, that, after everything I said up there about the, about getting your name right, I got I got the last name right and screwed up the easy one. <laughs> so okay. uh, Bri- Brian um, is uh, oh. was one of the earliest, uh, you know, other physicians that I connected with in the uh, low carb metabolic health space. And this was back when I was figuring when I was thinking I was crazy for thinking all the things that I had started to think about, you know, how metabolic health can influence mm. us and and how it might, uh, you know, keep patients off my operating table. And, uh, you know, Brian uh, is, I would say, one of the leaders in the space and uh, the podcast that Brian does uh, with his uh, co-host, uh, Trocolasian, um, is probably, I would say, the biggest uh, physician, uh, the biggest uh, low-carb podcast uh that I know the low carb MD podcast. And, uh, I happened to be at a meeting with Brian, uh, probably about two years ago now, maybe even three years ago and sheepishly approached him and, uh, said, Hey, you know, you don't know me, but I'm a heart surgeon. And Brian said, Oh my God, there's a heart surgeon at a low carb meeting. Uh, this is great. We got to get you on the podcast. And one thing led to another. And next thing I knew he was helping me set up my telemedicine practice and really has been a, uh, you know, guiding force for me as I've gotten into metabolic health. So I'm just excited to introduce him to our audience and have a great conversation with him since he's had, he's now had the chance to interview me three times, actually, uh, twice on the Low Carb MD podcast, once on Brian's own podcast. And now it's my chance to turn the tables and let's learn some about Brian and his amazing journey. So, Welcome, Brian. Yeah, let's hear the story. <laughs> Thank you, man. It's fun to be on this side of it. Yeah, and, I, and if I remember correctly, we were in Boca Raton, and and you had this huge plate of steak, and I say, "Hey, wh- what do you do?" Type thing, and he said, "I'm a heart surgeon." I laughed. I thought you were joking. And he goes, I'm a heart surgeon. I was like, "Oh," and you're eating red meat, huh? Let's talk, man. And and it's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's just great. I and mean, I love what you're doing, and and you know, you explaining where you're coming from and your experience, and we have a similar background in that. Well, give us a story. I, I, I know the broad outline of it, but I think this particular story, this, this type of story where people in the healthcare profession find, have a, have a come to Jesus experience, um, at some point in their career, I want to hear it. Give us the story. 
Yeah, my come to Jesus was really observing my patients, and I and I you, we all think that our patients aren't listening, but for me, I knew I was doing what the ADA said, and I, American Diabetes Association diet. I have a huge history of diabetes on, on my mom's side. My dad's side was pretty healthy, um, so I'm gaining weight. I'm working out six days a week, and I'm thinking something's wrong. I'm doing exactly what they're telling me. I'm having my green shakes in the morning, and then I'm having my my Melba toast or whatever, and rice cracker with a little tiny bit of peanut butter on there, and I'm gaining weight. I'm thinking I must have some kind of endocrine problem or something. I've, something's wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah. So then I started seeing my patients who said, "Look," and I would be frustrated with them because you know they have diabetes. I put them on insulin. They gain twenty pounds. I go, "Are you going to change your lifestyle or what?" I mean, you keep gaining weight, and like, I don't know, doctor. I'm doing what you're telling me to do, and I'm gaining weight. I'm thinking they they must be cheating. They're doing something that isn't right, right? But then I thought, well, I'm doing what I'm telling me to do, and I'm gaining weight too. So maybe what I'm telling them isn't the right thing. And then I had a patient come in and he lost 40 pounds. And I said, okay, like I was worried he had cancer or something. I go, you either have cancer or diabetes or your thyroid's messed up. He said, no, I've been doing this crazy diet. You're going to get mad at me. And I'm like, you lost 40 pounds. What, what crazy diet are you doing? And he was basically fasting two days a week, 500 calories or less, no carbs on those two days. And he loses 40 pounds. He said, I said, that's a lot of weight to lose just by doing. I said, what do you do on the other days? He said, well, I do whatever I want. I said, well, you have pizza and beer and all that. Yeah. I'm like, how can this? I'm thinking this is crazy. I mean, so I said, if, if you're fasting on Tuesday, you must be twice as hungry on Wednesday. And he said, no, that's the weird thing. When I started doing this, I'm not hungry on the other day. So I don't eat as much as I used to, even though I can. I said, well, that doesn't make sense. So I started researching and Googling and <laughs> trying to find this. different docs and, and someone talking about this stuff. And who did I come across? Jason Fung uh, talking about fasting and insulin. And so I actually reached out to him and he got right back to me. And we had a nice discussion about insulin resistance and diabetes and how it all works. And so he was a huge mentor to me, you know, to, to start understanding the importance of metabolic health and insulin resistance and, and, and how to get healthier. So what was, what is or was your 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 medical practice? Well, you know my my history is I, I spent eighteen years in a standard practice, and then about sixteen years into into that, treating diabetics and watching amputations and and dialysis and all these kind of things, um, I started realizing uh, like just throwing another drug at the problem isn't going to fix the problem. And myself, I started gaining weight. So when, when my patient lost weight, I thought, you know what, maybe I'll try it myself and see what happens. And then I started losing weight. And then my patient started asking me about it. And I thought, well, I can't really talk about this because it's not the standard of care. And you get yourself into trouble. So I said, well, this is what I'm doing. I can't recommend it to you, but this is what I'm doing. And so patients said, well, I'll try it. I'm like, well, I'm not recommending it to you. But if you want to try it, here's some resources you could look at type thing. you know? Because at that time, it was, you know, we're watching Professor Noakes go through trials and, and Gary Fetke. And it was kind of a, uh, you know, a taboo subject to talk about cutting out processed food and eating real food. <laughs> Well, let's go down that rabbit hole just a little bit. So you talked about standard of care and you couldn't recommend it. Uh, And then you talked about this trial, neither of which I know anything about. Dr. O is in the biz. I'm not. Enlighten me. So, so what happened with these two docs, uh, Professor Noakes was talking about doing a higher fat diet. He, so his background, just, just in a nutshell, he, was, he wrote the textbook on long distance running. And so he's the, anyone who runs marathons or even ultra marathons, they said, yeah, I read his book, you know, the, the lore of running, it was called. 
And so he was giving lectures and then he would rip out that whole section. He, he told everyone to carb load because you obviously needed carbs to run long distances. Then he reversed right. himself and said, oh, because he got diabetes. He started gaining weight. He's working out more, running more, but he's gaining weight and getting diabetes. His dad died of diabetes complications. And he thought, hmm. And then he started <laughs> looking at a couple of his his uh, cohorts who started doing Atkins and low carb and they're losing weight. And he thought these guys are sellouts. They're terrible. And so he said, I'm going to try it for three weeks and then I'm going to tell people it doesn't work. And I'll write, I'll write something about it in the journals. And he lost a bunch of weight and he started getting healthier and he's reversing his diabetes. He's feeling better. His mood's better. His energy's better. He could fit in his clothes. So he started talking about it. And then the, the medical board said, hey, you're a doctor. You can't be talking about nutrition stuff. That's outside of your scope of practice. And then he said something about breastfeeding, uh, you know, getting kids on a higher fat diet because that's closer to what breast milk is. And so he ended up going to, you know, through trial for three years and had to prove oh, his case. God. At the same time or shortly thereafter, Dr. Fetke was saying the same thing about, you know, uh, uh, eating cereal and and juice and, and milk for breakfast said, Hey, if you, if you change what you're doing, I won't have to amp. He did, he's an orthopedic surgeon doing amputations. He said, we can save your foot if we get your diet. Right. And they said, well, wow. you're a surgeon. You can't talk about nutrition. Right. Even though all of our guidelines say, Hey, talk about nutrition and lifestyle first. But when we do that, they say you're a quack. <laughs> so we watched this happen. And I said, well, and then at the same time I had, um, within six months, I had 11 patients come off of insulin. And I was like, oh, by changing what they were doing, by doing some intermittent fasting and cutting out the processed foods. And then once you see it, you say, well, heck, I, and, and, you know, 16 years before that, I never saw it once. And then in six months, I have 11 people come off insulin. And, wow. you know, it's, it's just staggering to see it as a physician because, you know, I, Philip will tell you, you know, when you hear, I used to hear these stories about chiropractors and naturopaths saying, hey, we'll get you off insulin. I thought, these guys are crazy. There's no way. Once you're on insulin, it's a life sentence. You're, you're on it until you die. And then once I saw it myself, I said, wow, this is kind of interesting, right? So, and, and so then we started the podcast and then, and then the timeline was both of these guys got exonerated during that time. And then the ADA actually stuck that into their guidelines quietly that, Hey, low carb works. <laughs> Great. So then, you know, that kind of took the, the bullets out, out of our back and the, the arrows for, to some degree. So you are now, according to the American Diabetic Association, allowed as part of your practice to recommend Low yeah, carb. it is actually in the guidelines. They quietly talk about it. There's actually, they just, in the last week or two, Philip, you may have seen this. They came out with a uh, uh, manual for practitioners using the low-carb uh, approach and super low-carb approach to treating diabetes. And they say there's tons of evidence. So the evidence has always been there. It's whether they wanted to pay attention to it or not. Yeah, What that's do you a, think happened? I was just going to say that's a real important point, that it's not that this evidence hasn't been there. You know, you can go back to the medical literature from the 1800s, the early 1900s, you know, prior to the discovery of, you know, before we figured out how to synthesize insulin, the treatment for diabetes was a low carbohydrate diet, uh, you know, flat out. And so it wasn't like this is new information. It was just that, you know, the powers that be finally decided to look at the information. But it's really, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me to, you know, hear that here is, you know, a, uh, you know, very thoughtful, very successful uh, primary care physician. And, you know, he knows the advice that he's giving is not working for himself, for his patients. He figured it out, you know, another way and 
find something that works again for him and for many patients, yet he's not allowed to talk about it. Uh, and, you know, but thankfully, uh, you know, in a couple of years, we've actually made a lot of progress on that front. And, you know, now wow, it sure seems we like do it. have the American Diabetes Association and, you know, others, uh, you know, talking about it. But we're still largely in a situation where it's hard to talk about this as a physician and it can have, you know, ramifications. And, you know, uh, Brian's going to get into the rest of his story. But ultimately, you know, Brian has now switched his whole practice model uh, to be able to, you know, have the freedom uh, to do this with his patients. Yeah. Well, tell us about that. Yeah. So that, that was my dilemma. That's exactly what happened is, you know, I started doing this and I thought, oh, I can keep people from getting on medications or I can get them off of medication. I can help them if they're, if they're a willing party. But in my old practice, I was pretty dang busy. I was working 16 hour days every day and I was running around like a crazy person. Like, and, and I have empathy for doctors who are listening. And so I realized it would take me an hour, hour and 20 minutes to really educate someone in my exam room. But the HMO would give me like 15, 10 minutes with the patient. So I was thinking, how in the heck do I do this? So my diabetic or, or patients I knew were going to get diabetes who were really metabolically sick, I'd say, hey, schedule that person before lunch, the last appointment before lunch. And then I would work through lunch and talk to them. But then the problem was all the callbacks and labs and all the stuff I should have been doing at lunch, I would be doing at the end of the day. So my days were getting very long. And then I started saying, well, I'm never home with my wife and kids and I'm here working 16 hour days and I'm trying to save the world. And probably 80% of the people didn't care. They just said, I'm not giving up my donuts and cake. And then I saw them sailing off with, you know, a, a bunch of cracks in their hole of their ship. I'm like, well, this is, I know where your journey is going to end. I, we know it. We've seen it enough times. So I realized that you have to invest up front. And then I realized my patients would get healthier. And then when they came back, they were feeling great. Their mood's better. They're, they're not depressed anymore. They're not anxious. Their diabetes is under control. We're weaning meds. And over time, we just started having social visits. But the problem is up front, when you're seeing 20 patients a day, you don't have that time to spend. So the doctors don't even talk about nutrition because they say, here's a pill. Your blood pressure is high. You're depressed. Here's an anxiety pill. See you next time. Right. And they get a copay every time you come back. So there's definitely, I mean, I learned a lot about medicine in the last few years. And you realize like making people healthy doesn't, doesn't pay the bills. Right. And, and, and oh, the insurance company wow. has a, everyone has a vested interest in you getting sicker. And that's the problem. Making people healthy doesn't pay the bills. Yeah, because the reality, you know, I, as a matter of fact, when I started getting towards the end, I, I met with one of the heads of the HMO that I worked with. And I said, you know, seriously, he, he heard that I was leaving. He said, are you having a midlife crisis? How could you leave the system? I know how much money you're making. I said, well, the system's killing me, as a matter of fact. Because even if I'm making a lot of money, I'm never home to spend it. I'm never yeah. home. I'm working all the time. And I have an oversupply of sick people that I can't really help. So I said, come to my office one day and I'll show you how many people we prevented, either prevented from going on insulin, diabetes meds, uh, uh, or, you know, got them off meds and, and they're doing great, but you guys penalize me for that. Cause you pay me for a 15 minute follow-up and I spend an hour and a half with the patient. So I'm working for free basically, but I'm getting satisfaction of helping the patient. But then there's a personal cost to me because of my time. Yeah. And I said, do you know how much money I'm saving your system? And you're penalizing me for checking an insulin level, right? Cause it's not a standard test. I said, here's why I check it. And I explain it to them and how we can catch diabetes, we have 10 years window before people get, they don't just get diabetes one day, type two diabetes I'm talking about. So I said, you know, 
I'm saving you a ton of money and you're not, you, I don't get reimbursed for that. And he said, well, Brian, you're costing us money actually, because the more diagnosis codes of the patient gets, the more we get paid from the government to provide that care, because that's oh how everyone thinks. God. The sicker the patient, I said, well, uh, preventing the, <laughs> like you, what you're saying is let everyone blow up their engine because we get paid more to replace the engine instead of saying, let's change the oil so we don't have to replace the engine and we'll save the wow. system money. But the system doesn't work that way. That's the problem. Okay, I want to make sure I, I, I hear you right. You're the frontline medical care provider. You found a way to treat patients so that they are healthier and don't need more medical care. The HMO that is reimbursing you for your time and expertise doesn't benefit from you helping people get healthy. And in fact, it's actually a negative for them that you are healing people, that you are helping to heal people because they get paid more money when you find more things wrong with people. Am I getting that right? You got it 100% correct because if I say, well, history of alcohol abuse, I put that on my, I get paid more, the system gets paid more. If I say history of whatever, you know, but the problem is when we prevent someone from getting diabetes, we don't. We get paid a lot less by the government. Sure. That's just how it works. So that's where the funding's coming from. So you say, well, gosh, if the money, <laughs> if we could not be spending that, if we make people healthier and we're not taking that government money, maybe we could use that money for other things that were people are beneficial, right? So I mean, we all see needs that are around that we would like to see met. You think, wow, we're spending it on dialysis and you know, bypass surgery, surgeries and things like that. Couldn't we prevent some of these things? And that's why, you know, Philip and I see that from that perspective. And once you start seeing it that way, it's hard to unsee that. You know, you say, gosh, I would rather prevent the disaster than try to fix the disaster that happens. Wow. Another. I would just, I just want to sit and let that soak in. Go ahead. I, 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 would, I'm, I'm, I was just going to say, I always love the, uh, the, blowing Jack's mind uh, moments on the uh, stay off my operating table podcast. It's one of the unique, uh, unique aspects uh, I think we get uh, by having Jack as my co-host. Um, you know, one of the other things I think uh, that has impressed me uh, so much as, you know, I've gone through this uh, transition and gotten into the low carb and the metabolic health space is the community uh, and the difference between, you know, the traditional medical meetings and the traditional environment around medicine where doctors are all put in a position where we think we're in competition with each other and, you know, we have to be fighting with each other over patients and we go to these meetings and it's, you know, the same people up on the stages, you know, just promoting themselves and, and rehashing all their data uh, to show what they do is great and what they do is the best. And then I start attending, you know, low carb medical meetings, um, and, you know, it's just a whole different environment. And uh, as I said, you know, I showed up at that first meeting uh, and no, you know, knew no one and really knew very little about, you know, low carb and all of this. And I start talking to guys like Brian and, you know, other uh, physicians there. And everyone's like, what can I do to help? You know, what can we do to help each other? And we all realize wow. that, you know, there's an endless supply of people for us to take care of and to get this message to. And the more we build up each other, uh, the stronger it becomes. Uh, so 
I'd love to hear Brian's uh, take on that on, you know, as he transitioned from the, you know, sort of more traditional medical world and in the grind of the HMO practice to his, you know, direct primary care practice and now has freedom to do those types of things. Yeah, Yeah, that that was my dilemma. That was my dilemma. My dilemma was this. How do I make it work? We want to make something, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. I'm thinking, how do I provide this care? And I kept thinking, look, if I can, because my, my nurse, everyone would laugh at me because they go, Brian, you're saying the same thing all day long. To every patient, you're saying the same thing. I go, yeah, it would be nice if I could just have 100 people together and tell them the same story and tell them the same thing and give them the same education. Why don't we do medicine like that? Why is it that we have all, we can only meet one-on-one with each person? So in my practice now doing direct primary care, you know, once, once every two weeks, we have everyone's invited, come to the meeting, we'll talk about whatever stress, sleep, you know, all these other pillars of health that are so important. And I don't have to sit there for a hundred hours and say it's one hour of my time still, and I can reach a hundred people, right? That's why the podcast, I I started realizing I'm reaching people. Like I was when at that conference, actually, when I was in Boca Raton, a lady was there and and Rob Sivas, who's a great guy in the low carb community was up giving a talk. And, you know, afterwards I went up and started talking to him. And then I, I saw this lady sitting there and I said, Oh my gosh, I'm so rude. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you're waiting to talk to Rob. I'll get out of the way and uh, yeah, I'm going to see him for dinner in an hour. Right. So, but the lady said, no, I came here to meet you. You saved my life. And I started laughing. I said, you don't know who I am. Right. She said, yeah, you're Brian Lenskis, right. From low carb MD. And I said, yeah, she goes, you saved my life. I lost 80 pounds. I'm off all my meds. Here's my husband. He's off his meds. And they flew wow. in from Mexico city to meet me and Tro, right? And you go, wow, that is pretty amazing that I've never met you. And I have people that I'm sitting in front of for an hour and I can't reach them. And I'm like, so, so I started realizing I need to have that 20% of people who really care. They say, I want to be off my meds. Other people say, just give me my cookies and let me shoot insulin. And they don't, yes. they don't want to change what they're doing. And they're going to have ramifications of that because we learned that insulin doesn't make sugar disappear magically. It shoves it somewhere. And now we're doing dialysis and, and amputations, all these things, because wow. we never fix the underlying problem. So to have those I, 20 I, 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 w- yeah. Would you just, just say that again? Because to me, that's profound. Giving people insulin doesn't make the sugar magically disappear. It goes somewhere. I've, yeah, that's, I, I'll, I'll we, tell you a sad story from that. You know, a sad story. I don't mean to interrupt you, but my God. No, interrupt me all you want, man, because I'll keep rambling on with no direction if you don't stop me and rein me in. But I had a patient, uh, African-American gentleman, overweight, diabetic. He loved his uh, uh, Gatorade. He loved his chips and crackers and all that stuff. And his sugars were astronomically bad. I mean, horrible. I go, look, you're a young guy. Here's what's going to happen. I'm telling you, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling you, here's what's coming. We've got to change these things. And then he would go to his endocrinologist. He goes, ah, tell Brian to screw off. Here, I'll just give you more insulin. Eat whatever you want, and I'll give you more and more insulin. I said, look, you're going to have to choose. One day, I'm telling you, you're going to choose between walking and your cookies and soda and all this stuff. You, you, you cannot. It's, it, it's going to kill you, I'm telling you. And the poor guy ends up over time, and he was on a huge dose of insulin. I mean, massive doses of insulin. But over time, he starts getting severe neuropathy. He has a stroke. Heart attack. He's 40, 40 years old. And he comes in in a wheelchair, and he goes, doc, don't say it. Because I said you're going to choose between walking and all this stuff you're doing to yourself. He said, don't say it. And I said, no, I would never say it. But he goes, I know, I know I'm going to change. And he made a change and he lost 85 pounds within 
three months or something ridiculous like that. And, and, and he's walking now with a walker and he's, he's kind of turning around, but he said of all those years ago, I would have listened. Right. And I, you saw what was coming. I told him, here's, what's going to come. Dialysis is going to come. All these things that we, we, it's a mm-hmm. foregone conclusion. If I see you running on the treadmill at full speed, I can tell you, you cannot keep running at that speed forever. You're going to run out of steam at some point. Ooh. So that's th- those kind of things you think, gosh, how many things have, can we have prevented if we would it go back? So sometimes I see patients, they'll come to me and they have tons of diabetes complications. Like, man, I couldn't have helped them 10 years ago because I wouldn't have known. But now I know sure. it's like, oh my gosh, if we manage this right, these people can live long, healthy lives. You look at someone like Magic Johnson, they say, oh, you have HIV, you're going to be dead in a year. And now he's still here healthy yeah, doing 20, stuff. Because, about 20 years since then. Yeah, we get better at stuff. But and with diabetes, we just haven't changed course at all. So at some point, you have to start saying, okay, what do we do to help our patients? I, I, on this show, I know just enough chemistry to uh, basically drown in a puddle of it, but I'm still interested in it. We had a great conversation about cholesterol a couple of weeks ago. I just loved it. I want to ask you about sugar. So insulin allegedly helps to get the sugar into your cells, even though you're in a state of insulin resistance. But you said the sugar doesn't just magically disappear. What happens at a chemical level, at a, at a, a metabolic level, at a cellular level? when people are mainlining insulin. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. No, so insulin, it was basically, its role is just, it, it's like at the top of the thermostat. So it sees your sugars to go too high and says, oh, it's too high. I, I, my job is to keep it low, right? I, I want the sugars not to go too high. So what happens is insulin starts working and you can imagine, and, you know, one way you can think about it is if you have to clean a little room here and I say, okay, I need you to keep this room clean. And I start throwing a little bit of dirt around. You get your little broom and you're happy and everything's good. You can keep up. Everyone's happy. But all of a sudden, if I keep throwing buckets of dirt on the floor, it's like, I can't keep up. So I have to hire some more friends to come help me. So you get more and more insulin to get rid of that all that junk that's there. And so sooner or later, you run out of places to put it. You go, okay, all my trash cans are full. Where do I put all this stuff? And sooner or later, it piles up in the in the hallway, right? And that's your bloodstream. And so all of a sudden, your sugar gets too high. So the 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 fallacy we've seen, which is true, but there, it's a fallacy also, is that, oh, you get too obese and then you get diabetes. But I, I had guys in my practice over 150 pounds that look great and they have type 2 diabetes. And I kept thinking, why would this be? Well, some people can't get fat. And I have a lady I just saw this week. She's 420 pounds. Her insulin is normal. Her sugar is normal. Her cholesterol looks good. Like if you looked at it, you'd say she's an 18-year-old triathlete, right? Ex- excellent status. But she could keep getting fatter and fatter and fatter. So she basically had a lot of storage units to put this extra dirt in. And some of us run out of, we have one storage unit, we run out oh. and now, now we're, we're overflowed in, and that's diabetes. So insulin's job is to get rid of it. it it's not that insulin's the enemy, but it's the oversupply of insulin. So you get insulin resistance. Jason Fung would, would describe it as if you came to my house and and you're used to drink. Here's how we we treat diabetes in, in, in Western medicine right now. We say, oh, you come to my, you come over and go, hey, Brian, I'm drinking like 14 beers a night and I can't get drunk. What should I do? So, oh. You can't get drunk with 14. Let's give you 16, 18, 20, 22. We just keep going up till you get the effect you want. Or you can say, you're drinking 12 beers a day. Why don't we cut that down and get off it for a week or two? And then you go and have one drink with your friends and you're happy. You don't need 14 anymore. And that's what people don't understand is once you take that sugar out of the system, you can rest your insulin and your insulin becomes more effective. 
So instead of having to have 30 guys clean up the dirt, I only need one now because I'm not throwing so much dirt on the floor anymore. If oh that boy. makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it definitely makes sense. Um, all right. So I realize there's a little inside baseball here, but I think it's important for the folks who are listening who who really still probably have a misplaced trust in traditional Western medicine. Talk about the process of moving from being a, a reimbursed by an HMO to this standalone uh, direct patient care that you are doing, how it has affected your ability to care for your patients, the quality of care that the patients you have get, talk about your lifestyle. That's a big change, and I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I almost want to tear up when you ask me that question because just the like a week and a half ago, we were out to dinner with our neighbors. And uh, they were asking, how was the transition into direct primary? Because I've been doing it for about two years now. And uh, they said, Brian, don't talk. I just want to hear what your wife has to say. And she's, she was like teared up saying, I have my husband back. Like he's home. He's not stressed out. We have coffee in the morning. He's not right. Well, part of it was I was working, you know, about half an hour from my house. I live in East County, San Diego, and I was working downtown. So I was always stuck in traffic and dealing with that. So if I ever got off at a normal hour, I'd be stuck in traffic anyway. So I'll, go, I'll just stay here and do paperwork for nothing, you know, until six o'clock at night. And then maybe I'll get out by eight. And I'm getting up at four in the morning, driving there, going to the hospital before rounds and all that stuff. So just from that standpoint, the, the the time, I still work a fair amount of hours, but I love it because I'm not tortured. I'm not, you know, my biggest stress in life was this. I'd be with a patient trying to help them with low carb and, and, and I'm finally seeing their their eyes are getting it. And it's like, knock on their doctor, doctor, there's four people waiting. You got to hurry. I'm like, oh gosh, I can help this guy. But okay, let me call you later. Let me call you back tonight and we'll finish where we started. And then the next patient, then the next, and it was one of those things where it was just like, you were on a treadmill going too fast for eternity, right? I was always working. I'd come home and go, okay, once my wife goes to sleep, I can work for another hour and catch up for tomorrow. And on the weekends, I was getting my charts done for the week before and getting them prepared for the next week. And so it was always, it was kind of like being an airplane pilot and your, 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 your plane is full and they go, okay, there's six people waiting that have to get on this flight. How are you, what are you going to do? I was like, well, I don't have any seats to put them in. Right. So it was like that. So I'd have to put them at lunch before work, after work. And so you're so busy all the time that you forget. So if I'm seeing 20 patients that day and someone comes in with a unique diagnosis, how do where do I have time to research that? Right? If I'm working 16 hours, then I have to go home and research it afterwards. And that's why so many doctors just don't even talk about low carb or keto because they go, "This is just another Dr. Oz thing. It's going to be gone in a week, so I'm not going to waste my time learning it. It'll be it'll go away." But as Phil said, this has been around since forever. When you can look back at Osler and the the, all the godfathers of venison, this is what they did. They cut the carbohydrates. They, they didn't have all the processed foods that we have now, but what they did have, they got rid of. They realized, okay, juice probably isn't good if your sugars are going crazy, right? So so the, the big thing was, like, really, I enjoy what I do. When I come to work, I laugh because what I've done is cheat the system because the people who are seeking me out because of low carb, that's what they want. They're coming to me because they say, okay, I'm on diabetes medicines. I went off it. So I've already won the game in that standpoint because I have a motivated patient. So mm-hmm. I have someone who's motivated that says, I want to come off these meds. What do I got to do, doc? And I have the, the path forward to help them. It's a, it's a win-win situation because they're happy and, and you think about it. So the, the standard for direct primary care is like, say it's a hundred bucks a month for you. And I get you off of medicine that costs you $300 a month. You've saved $200 just by not being on the meds, the insulin is not cheap. And all these drugs, I mean, some of the newer diabetes meds, we can't get people on it because there's it's like 600 800 bucks a month. Who wants to pay that? Let's just 
get the diabetes better. Why be on something wow. the rest of your life and you're, you're a recurrent customer? You say, okay, let's, let's fix the underlying problem. So I have people that are coming off meds left and right. They're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever, it's the, the easiest decision I've ever made because I feel great. I don't need all the meds. I'm sleeping. My mood's better. I'm, I'm better to get along with. And my patients are, they come in and they want to just talk for half an hour, right? So direct primary care, I'm not in a hurry because I schedule an hour for that appointment right? Or 45 wow. minutes or my shortest appointment is half an hour. If, I, if I'm just doing a follow-up with something and we sit and talk and like, so my patients now are saying, Hey doc, uh, I got to go. I got a meeting. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not rushing my patient anymore. Cause I got time. I'm like, Oh, I'm scheduled for half an hour so I can sit and read or we could talk. Okay. Let's talk about stuff. And, you know, so I'm learning a lot from my patients about Bitcoin or life or whatever. Cause I'm not talking about putting them on more and more drugs. They're coming off meds and they're like, Hey, I feel great. Like, what do you want to talk about? Right, Philip, you see, you're seeing the same thing where people are feeling better, and it's like that's what we went to medicine for to help people. Yeah, not to see how many patients I could see in a day or how how sleep. Like at my old practice, we say, "Oh, I only slept four hours last night." How about you? Oh, three and a half. Oh, good job. <laughs> right and now, you realize, wow. oh my gosh, being chronically sleep deprived that affects your judgment, your mood, your your metabolic rate, everything. So you go, okay, uh, I'd rather take care of myself than be on a treadmill the rest of my life. Yeah, I mean, and ultimately, you know, seeing that success of your patients, you know, and seeing them actually getting uh-huh. better uh, is just such a, uh, you know, powerful feeling. And it, it's really one of the biggest problems we have in medicine is that doctors don't get to see enough wins anymore in the traditional, you know, kind of practice model. And you're just sort of stringing patients along and trying to keep them, you know, alive and trying to manage their problems. And when you start to actually see people getting better and people getting off of medications, which, you know, again, unheard of. I mean, they didn't teach us that in medical school. We had zero, you know, as much as, you know, we talk about how little we learned about nutrition in medical school, we learned even less about how to get patients off of medications. Uh, and now to be able to do that uh, is just, uh, you know, so much more rewarding. And I think. Yeah. And you see it and, and the patients appreciate it. You know, as a matter of fact, just today, I saw a patient for the first time. I've been taking care of her husband. He transitioned with me from my old practice over here, but she was seeing another doc. And uh, so they set it up. And, and so my office manager said, hey, someone wants to see you like kind of semi-urgent. Yeah. What's going on? Well, she had a, a physical last week and they felt a breast mass and she's called them six times at the last week and no one's returned her call. So she doesn't know what to do and she needs to get imaging done. She, I was like, I'll order the test. Let, let's do a quick meeting today. Meet her, order the test. And she's crying. Like, thank you. No one cares. Like, no one cares. She's left there for a week, concerned she has breast cancer and no one wants to order the imaging because it takes how long? It took me two minutes to do the order. Like, What's wrong with our system? Like when you don't have time to call someone, when you palpate something and you see something could be really wrong, you say, let's, this is top priority. Let's fix this. Right. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that where things fall through the crack. And and as an example, in my old practice, I was so busy that they had to insulate me from the patient. So what would happen is people would call, it would go to the person answering the phone. They go, okay, let me transfer you to the receptionist. And the receptionist says, well, there's no appointments here. Let me transfer you to his medical assistant, see if they can get you. And then so the poor person sitting there for an hour trying to get, figure out what's going on. So now my patient texts me, Hey, Brian, can you refill my blood pressure med? Yeah, no problem. Done. <laughs> Takes me two minutes because electronically I get send all that stuff in. So why does it have to go through five people to get to me that I'm paying a salary? So direct primary care also lets me reduce my staff by 90%. I was going to ask about yeah. that as well. I um, I used to see a chiropractor. Um, I got T-boned in a car wreck several years ago. Went and saw this chiropractor. We ended up being good friends. 
I asked him one day, I said, Casey, how much of your staff would you lose if you were not dealing? He was complaining about dealing with the insurance company. I said, how much of your staff is dedicated to, to taking care of insurance? He said, two thirds. If I was getting, if I was not dealing with insurance companies, I could reduce my staff size by two thirds. Blew my mind. No, that's for graduate. sure. Yeah, I'm beginning to understand. That's just the that's the model. It really is, and that's what I was seeing. Yep. Same thing. All your money's going to overhead. I looked. I'm like, I'm working my butt off. I'm working 16 hour days, and all my money's going to overhead. What am I doing? This is crazy. Why do I need eight people on staff and a backup nurse? Because it's such a machine. Like if my medical assistant called in sick tomorrow, I was like, okay, no big deal. I'll just get the blood pressure and do the vital. It'll take me a couple extra minutes. No big deal because I have the time. But when you're seeing people every eight minutes, six minutes, and, and you're trying, you, you can't do it. So if you don't have your staff there, what are you going to do? So you have to have a backup for your medical assistance in case someone calls in sick or whatever. And so it's so stressful. And and then just billing the insurance companies and the way to get paid, did we get paid? I don't know if they got paid or not paid. And, you know, you bill something and they, they pay you like, you know, $20 for a three hour appointment or something. It's crazy. So it's like, why don't we just take out all the middlemen and let me take care of my patients, Right. So it's a joke because when you look at the cost, say it's a hundred bucks, like depending on whose direct primary right. care you go to, it's like for a hundred bucks a month, what am I paying from Netflix or whatever? You know, you look at it like, okay, what matters more? Like me being able to call my doc, say, yeah, come on in today. Because what I've always said is it's the problem is not insurance. The problem is access. So you can have the best insurance in the world, but if your doctor's booked out for six months, you're not getting in. So that's what was frustrating because I felt the obligation. So for me, this is what I struggled with for years. I thought, okay, I could either get really quick with patients and be very efficient. And I was working on my efficiency all the time, or I could see it. But if I, if I work through it, then patients are upset because you're not spending any time with them. They're trying to get them out the door as quick as you can, or I could spend a lot of time with the patient that comes in, but then it takes longer to get in. Cause if I, if I spend more time, I can only see 14 exactly. patients a day and all that there's a huge backup. So Whenever, like at, at that trip to Boca Raton, I was out for three days and I was, it took me six weeks to recuperate because I had nowhere to put people and everyone would be seen. They were mad I was out of the office for three days and there was, you know, my partners wouldn't see them because they're busy and you start seeing it's like, it's a rat race. It's not worth it. It's, it's not good care to say, well, and I was also upset when I got back because four of my patients got sent to the ER for minor stuff. It's like, why'd they send them to the ER? Well, because they didn't have time to see them or urgent care. It's like, they, all they needed was a you know nose drops or something. It's not a big why, why waste the system because it's way more expensive to go to the ER as everyone knows. So our job as the primary is to keep people out of the emergency room. So I'll tell you, you know, when when I, which is crazy timing on my part is I, I started my practice in in June of 2020. So I, I gave notice in January of 2020. Guess what? We had a pandemic at the same time. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what did I do? I'm like in trouble now. I'm going to be on my own, and we have a pandemic now. So guess what? I could see all my patients still, right? I, and, and because they come to my office, it's you. It's you and me. There's no one else. There's no waiting room. My waiting room, I have a couch that no one sits on because they come. Hey, welcome. Good to see you. Come on back. Brian will see you right now. Because no one's sitting there waiting. I'm like, why did I spend all that money on a couch? <laughs> it's sitting there. I go, sit on the couch for a minute just so I can get my money's worth. Because, you know, really, people aren't waiting. Because who wants to go to the doctor? And it was standard of my old practice. One of my partners, people would wait over an hour every time. So then you train the patients like, well, I'm not going to get there and sit for an hour. So they come later. So if he's on exactly. time, his patients come late. And so it's a disaster. So I always ran on time. And I, I, I stress that because I'm like, I don't want my attorney who's making X number of dollars a, an hour to sit there for an hour and waste their time. 
they have stuff to do. They don't want to be sitting there and have to wait. So that's what's nice about it is like, okay, if you come 10, like before, <laughs> Philip knows, I mean, if you come, say you have a 15 minute appointment and you arrive 10 minutes late, you're like, it's only 10 minutes. Well, that's three quarters of your appointment's gone. And now they have to get your blood pressure. Now your appointment's over. Now my next patient's upset because they have to wait because I'm now seeing you at that time. So I'd have to reschedule people. Now if someone's 15 minutes late, like, okay, no problem. I still got time. We could talk about whatever we need to fix because I have 45 minutes with you. So who cares about that 15? I could still, that's just small talk. We'll have to skip over a little bit this time. You know, it doesn't throw my whole day off like it used to, because if someone showed up late, the first appointment would stress me out. So I would say never schedule that person in the morning, schedule them last appointment. So I don't have to, like if they're late, they don't mess because some people are just chronically late. It's just terrible, you know, or they don't show up or whatever, you know? So how many patients did you see on average under the old HMO model? Oh, I, day, I, was, per day. I would say for sure 18 a day was an and average. T- I'd say that's, today, that's a typical. And now? Today, uh, eight maybe. Eight. Wow. It depends if I'm seeing new patients because I schedule. Like if I'm doing a physical, I'm spending an, at least an hour with them, right? So, And if it's a little bit shorter and I'm running ahead of schedule, you know, they, that works out too. And, and sometimes we have people that are doing remote visits and follow-ups and things like that. But, you know, right. I do, I'm not just doing direct primary care. I also do metabolic health and that's going to be more uh, time consuming because I'm really teaching them about metabolic disease and all. Not everyone wants to talk low carb stuff. And so I say, okay, I'm not going to force it on you. Like you're a young, healthy athlete and, you know, here's some, some little pointers, but you know, th- these people are going to be healthy for a while anyways. But, uh, but yeah, being able to spend time and educate people because my appointments get shorter and shorter because once you get it, I don't have to keep telling you, you get it. I don't have to, you're living it and we make little tweaks here and there if we have to. And otherwise you're on autopilot for the most part, you know, unless you get sick and here we are, we're here for you. We could do it via zoom. You can come in, you know, some people are at their office go, Hey, I don't want to drive all the way to your place. Can we just talk? Yeah. What's going on? (laughs) So we can zoom just like this. That's the great thing about the technology. And then we have our are, you know, every other week we do a hike. So all my patients, we get together and go, Hey, let's go for a hike. And if someone's 400 pounds, they could walk with someone else who's a little bit slower. And we, we build a community and everyone kind of waits for each other and, and wow. people start learning and talking to each other about life. Like that's what I went to medicine for, to know the people. And so if I'm walking with you for an hour, I might as well go for a walk and we can talk about whatever you want to talk about life or low carb or whatever. So it's fun because it, and then what happens is people start helping each other. It's like, oh yeah, I used to struggle with snacking when I got home from work. You know what I did? I did this and this. And people say, oh yeah, Tom's advice really helped me. You know, and it's like, I can shut up and let people talk. And then the other t- time we do a Zoom meeting on a Wednesday night and we just talk about whatever they want to talk about. You know, maybe oh, something my that, Lord. That's you know, a, a new book that's coming out or whatever, you know, talk about because it's my, it's one hour, but I could talk to a hundred people at one hour rather than one person for an an hour each, and that's a hundred hours of my time, right? That's I'm happy fantastic. to do it. And so, so here's what I'm hearing: there's the the Pareto principle, which seems to be just a, a part of the warp and woof of reality. Eighty um, percent of the problems come from twenty percent of the people. Eighty percent of the success comes from twenty percent of the, the the creative people. The otherwise known as the eighty twenty rule. What I'm hearing is that that same thing applies to the world of patients. There is some percentage of people who are committed to getting well and the rest of them basically just want the minimum effort necessary. So for those minimum effort necessary people, get off onto the HMO treadmill, get your drugs, enjoy your life to whatever extent you're able to. But if you're one of those people who's actually committed to getting healthy, 
you're going to have to get off that treadmill because they don't have any answers for you. No. Correct. And I tell people that I go, look, like, it's like me going to a, a, an accountant and he goes, okay, here's what you got to do. Blah, blah, blah. And I don't listen to any of their advice. At some point he's going to say, well, Brian, why do you pay me? <laughs> right? So I have people like that that I'll say, hey, why are you paying me? Because you're not following up on anything. Just go down to the HMO and they can throw all the drugs at you because that's the path you're on. So either we change and say, okay, I want to go for a walk here and there. And maybe we cut back on the soda, you know, those kind of things. I mean, I'm glad to take your money if you want me to, but I'm not doing you any good. And why pay me when you could just go pay any doctor, you know? It's, it, it, you know, and for some people, really, some people is about the convenience. They go, hey, I want to be able to call you. It's like, you know, the way I, I look at it and, and the way it has been in practice, I could tell you that after doing this for a couple of years, is patients don't want to be a, you know, maybe at the very beginning, they'll call you more often to test you to make sure you're going to be responsive. But over time, it's like AAA. I don't call them every day when my car's running, right? I just call them when I have a flat tire, <laughs> right? So if everyone hey, has just a flat tire to say day, that my car is fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if everyone has a flat tire every day, then you, you you can't take care of them. AAA goes out of business. And for me, if all my patients are sick and they don't want to get healthier, then it's going to be, I'm going to be seeing them all the time. And we're not accomplishing it. You know, that's the model I left. So yeah, selecting those 20% that care. And then they say, okay, doc, what do I got to do? I just got diagnosed with diabetes. I don't want to go down the path my dad went down. Is there anything I can do? Yes. And I smile because I know we can help them. Because if you're a newly diagnosed diabetes, diabetic, that's the easiest patient I'm going to have because you're motivated, you're ready to go and you go, okay. I'm ready to start a new slate and let me get on track. I, I, I'm scared. I don't want to be shooting insulin. What do I got to do? Okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's our path and here's the path forward. You know, and I think that's as we all work. And then the biggest problem is that I've experienced is, okay, so I get you on the right path. Then you go see your cardiologist and they say, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing you can do. You're going to die, right? That's why I had to ask Philip. That. I go, right. well, do you have cardiologists who work with you? Because they won't want you to talk to their patients because they're thinking low fat, low fat, low fat. And we say, okay, you can have steak. What? You can't have steak. You have to eat salmon only and only, right? You only eat vegetables and tofu. So it's hard because it's such a paradigm when you say, okay, let's look at different markers. So I've had cardiologists I've sat with an hour and tried to explain it. I show them the insulin. I go, look, here's the study from Columbia. The biggest risk factor was high insulin. You look at the data. That's what it shows very clearly. It was like a huge, huge difference. And they say, yeah, it's about weight loss. It's about this. And, and they, they won't accept that fact of let me look. And no one checks insulin levels. That's what's maddening. I have patients that are coming to me just because their system says, no, we won't check in insulin. So they're like, I want to know if I'm metabolically healthy or not. It's a, it, When I order for my patients and I use a lot of cash pay uh, labs, it's $12.95 to get the answer that we need. $12.95. Wow. And they block it because they don't know what to do with the information. It happens all the time where the doctor says, I don't want to order these tests because I don't know what they mean and I don't want to be liable. So I'm not ordering nothing. Right. And plus, the other thing is in the HMO system, if you order too many labs, you get docked. If you do too many referrals, you get in trouble. Yeah. Like it, you have to use those resources of what's like, if I can get the okay, patient healthier, just, I don't need all these resources. Just to connect the dots here, what you're describing for me, and I, I really did beat Phil up pretty good when we first talked, and, and I commend you for the. All, for being so forthright with me about the system. But what I'm hearing is more evidence that the healthcare patient care dog is absolutely unequivocally being waved, wiggled by the insurance tail. And the insurance tail gets their money from Uncle Sugar. That's that's what I'm hearing. 
Well, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it's really a conflict of interest when you start looking at the whole picture because yeah, you step that's back. What I, that's the point. Yeah. Is it's a conflict of interest? Yeah, there's definitely a conflict of interest. So you look back and say, wait a minute, uh, <laughs> who's sponsoring the ADA? You go look it up yourself. Who's on this side? Who's on that side? So. To use the analogy of an oil spill, if I have the, a company that cleans up oil spill, I'm like drill like crazy and spill all the oil, and I'll and I could I get made more money the more you guys mess up. So both sides are saying, "Hey, eat, eat all the cookies and soda you want," and then when they get tired, then I have the insulin to give you, and then that can take care of that problem. So we're all happy because the more you eat of that, the more you have to use my product. So it's a it's a perfect business model. So when you look at it, you say, "Okay, so what's better for my patient if you're my advocate?" What's best for me as a patient, right? And and so that's the you know part yeah. of the problem. And it's not that the that necessarily that the the um, that that that's a separate problem than the government funding sicker patients, because the sicker right. you get, the more money you get. So then you have more more incentive to be have sicker patients and to to code those things because you get paid more the more you code. So for me, it's like. I'm not sending codes to anyone. I'm just doing it for my own records and for my patients because I'm not sending off diabetes codes to the insurance because I'm not dealing with them at all. I don't have anything to ask, so I don't have to beg them. And, in other and, words, know. your your incentives and the patient's incentives are aligned and you're working together and there's nobody behind the scenes throwing a, a monkey wrench in the works to try to keep it from... Yeah, I think that's exactly right. To, that's exactly the, the you know, health of it. Putting the patient back at the center of medicine, which is really what it should have, you know, what it should have never gotten away from. And, you know, one of the things that I love about what Brian does as well is, you know, bringing that humanity back to medicine. And, uh, you know, as if having the, you know, number one low carb podcast wasn't enough. Brian then went out and started a second podcast of his own uh, called Life's Best Medicine, where he really talks about, you know, bringing the humanity back to medicine and the intersection of faith and medicine. And, uh, you know, I'd really love to, you know, make sure that we touch on that topic as well. Let's do. So tell us about Life's Best Medicine. Well, life's best medicine is, uh, you know, I, I, I always have my guests on. I say, well, what's life's best medicine for you? Is it helping people? Is it is it your religion? Is it collecting rocks? Whatever it is. So what gets you through those hard times when you're on your back and you're struggling? Especially, you know, the, the reason that I really did the podcast, you know, it was on my mind for a while. And I thought, you know, uh, you know, low-carb MD, the problem is we I start having guests on and they go, okay, my faith got me through this hard time when I had diabetes and I got my leg amputated and then my faith brought me to you guys and started doing low carb and I changed my life and I'm happy now. And then people would say, well, we don't want to talk about faith here. I was like, well, that's part of the health equation because if you're stressed and worried all the time, guess what? You get ulcers, you get stressed, you get headaches, yeah. you get migraines, all these things that are stress related. You know, we say stress is a killer, but then when you're talking about how do I relieve my stress, people get upset. They go, just talk low carb. It's like, well, what happens if there's more to the story, right? So we started seeing people doing low carb and their mood got better. I was like, why is this happening? That's weird. We're not treating, we're not giving them antidepressants, but maybe that high sugar and high <laughs> insulin inflammation in the brain. And we have data on this stuff, right? So you could do a perfect low carb diet and hate everyone and not sleep and drink all night and do all this smoke and, and you're not going to be any healthier. You might be a little bit healthier than if you weren't eating low carb, but okay, what about the other parts of the equation? And so that's why I said, you know, let's talk about faith a little bit, or let's talk about meditation or you know i've had atheists talk and i go what, okay what, what do you what brings you peace in life you know fixing problems or helping people or whatever it is so it's like okay it doesn't have to be everyone has to have the same belief as me but we should be able to sit and have a reasonable discussion 
of why you believe what you believe and why I believe what I believe or, or, you know, what got me through on those hard times because someone else is going to be laying in a hospital bed somewhere that says, Hey, I like that approach. Maybe I can apply that having a positive attitude or exercise, whatever it is. So it's not just what you put in your mouth. It's like, okay, a lot of us are stress eaters. So, okay, why don't we fix the stress problem and see if the, the stress eating gets better, right? See if the eating gets better. If you're mm. grumpy and tired and, and, and upset, then they, we need to fix some of those other problems too. And that's why direct primary care allows us to address all that because I could, you know, within two minutes, I could just say, hey, Philip, how are you doing? Oh, uh, you know, and I know already, oh, something's going on. But if you go and say, hey, I'm feeling great, doc. Everything's fantastic. And you go, okay, then we can talk about other things. So sometimes, you know, people, they, they have the weight of the world, especially with COVID. We learned a lot of what matters. Like if you sit in your house and you're dark cellar all day and you're scared and you're watching the news and you're upset and you're stress eating and you're going back and eating your Cheerios because that made you, you know, honey nut Cheerios because that's what you ate when you were a kid and didn't have problems. And so, so many people are getting 30, 40, 50 pounds during this, the, this, this lockdown time and they're stressed and they're fighting with their wife and they got you know, work problems and you know, have to close your business. I mean, when you start seeing the impact of all those things, you think, wow, we have to address that. Because if you're, if you're stressed and you're losing your business, I can't say, well, just, just cut out the processed food and you'll feel better. It's like, well, you got a lot of other stuff going on we have to right. address and look at, right? How do, do we need counseling? How do we you know, get you in a group and start connecting with people? And it's amazing. I've learned a lot too, just with you know, some of my sure. seniors. When we did our Zoom meetings, just to, they would start crying because they're, they're seeing a human face for the first time in a year. Right. Oh my God. Someone who cared about them and they could see you and talk to you and see your eyes and see you laugh and, and enjoy and just blow off steam, wow. whatever. I mean, there's a lot of medicine in that, not just sure. thinking, okay, eat low carb and everything's fine and you're going to sit in a cellar by yourself all day. Um, are you familiar with Norman Cousins' story? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, share a little bit about that. Um, Norman Cousins had, uh, he wrote a book called Anatomy of a Disease, I believe it is. This is the early 70s. He was a, uh, I think he, I don't remember what his profession was, but uh, he was diagnosed with some sort of life-threatening illness. Um, and the physicians basically gave him a death sentence. You know, you're done. And for whatever, it's been probably 20 years since I read the book. So I'm pulling it all out of, mm-hmm. out of, out of deep offline memory here. Um, he, he, he essentially laughed himself back to health. He locked himself in a hotel room. I think he was in the TV business. This was pre VCRs, but for, because of the business he was in, he was able to get a hold of tapes of the old, Marx Brothers uh, movies and Groucho Marx television shows. I don't know what else, but everything funny that he could find. He watched funny films for hours and literally beat his disease. And of course, that all led to kind of the explosion of interest in the mind-body connection. How could a guy with an unbeatable disease beat beat a disease by laughing? Um, and you're just simply describing more of that mind-body connection. So I yeah, will, I will he... offer to our listeners, look up Norman Cousins, Anatomy of a Disease. We'll put it in the show notes. I have a question I want to direct to both of you guys because this is a different kind of show we're doing right now as physicians who have stepped out off the treadmill, who've gotten off of the, the gerbil wheel. Speak to, tradi- to to physicians who are still there and fearful about making the change. 
You what would you say doctor? to those guys? Yeah, the surgeons always go first. That's how it works. They they, they dish everything else off on this primary care guys. <laughs> Well, and and as you guys know, you know, I still have, you know, I, I still sort of have one foot on the treadmill and, and one foot off since I, I still, you know, do my heart surgery in the traditional medical, uh, you know, environment and in the hospital. And then I have my telemedicine practice that has allowed me to, uh, you know, function outside of it. So I still see both aspects of it. And, you know, what I now try and tell other physicians is, you know, we really need to get back to being true to ourselves and being true to the ideals that, you know, led us into medicine in the first place and really start thinking about, you know, are what we doing every day serving the patient or are we serving someone else? And, you know, when you really look at the, you know, the mainstream practice of medicine within the healthcare system, it's hard to say that we are serving the patient uh, you know, every day, uh, the, the patient is almost the, you know, the byproduct of the system, uh, and they are not being served well by the system. And ultimately for me, uh, you know, what I find myself doing, you know, more and more is saying, you know, is what I am doing today serving the patients, uh, or is it serving someone else? And I, I just hope that more and more physicians start to look at that, start to question, that in themselves and that leads them down the right pathway. Yeah, I think that's critical. I think that's the thing. And I, I really do have a lot of compassion because I know I, we, you know, we've dedicated our lives to medicine. All these doctors have, they've worked their butts off. They have 300,000 like I did in medical school loans. And you're trying to pay off your loans and you're kind of a, a hostage to the system and you realize, and that's what was happening. I'm looking at some of the contracts I had with the, with some of the bigger providers and they said, oh, you don't like it. Okay. We'll take all of our patients away. <laughs> right. And so they're, they're paying you way less than what you deserve. And you're like, well, this is kind of crazy. I'm working like just to pay my staff basically. And I'm a nice guy, but I'm not that nice at some point. So you start realizing you're a cog in the wheel. And if I was thinking if mm. I'm just doing cooker, cookie cutter medicine, if I leave, they just bring another cookie cutter doctor in to fill the place. So it's really, you start realizing that because the pressures that were put on us is saying, okay, you know, because if you leave the system, you're, you're abandoning your patients to a degree. And also, if you're only seeing X number of patients, now all these other patients aren't going to have a doctor to see them. So, you know, there's a guilt trip that's given to you and you go, okay, look, I gave every single one of my patients the option to follow me over if they wanted to, no pressure. But if you want to come, you're more than welcome to come. Certain patients, I said, look, you're, you're not bought in, you know, I, it's going to be, it's not worth your money, honestly. Cause it, you know, if I join the gym and I never go, then what am I spending my money on at some point, right? If I'm not listening, I'm not doing anything. So, and surprising, mm. there's some people I thought, you know, I don't think you're committed and then boom, they change and boom, they're in and they're killing it right now and they're doing great. So I think part of it is you have to look and say, gosh, we're not just a cog in the wheel. We, we bring something of value to the table. And so when you start working for free, basically, and you're, yeah, and so if you pay me less for each widget that I make, then I have to make more and more widgets. And then I can't, if, if I'm making t-shirts and you say, hey, Brian, I need four t-shirts tomorrow, I could probably print four t-shirts for you, but you go, I need 4,000 tomorrow. Uh-oh, that's going to be a little bit more challenging. So mm. I think that's what we're up against is the doctors are just working as hard as they can and they're in survival mode. They're running on a treadmill that's too fast. And so they're frustrated, they're tired, they're beat up. They see their patients getting sicker and they say, what the heck am I doing here? Like a lot of days I said, what the heck am I doing here? I didn't make any difference today. And I worked 16 hours. I still didn't see my wife and kids. And um, I didn't accomplish. I got yelled at by six people because they're mad because they can't <laughs> get in and, you know, whatever. And it was just conflict. Now peace, no conflict. I come to work and I laugh because I'm like, this is just like 
a spa. My my work is very pleasant, and everyone gets along, and we're out to help. We're we're all united in trying to help patients. But because when you have a huge staff, like they're always going to have personality conflicts and all kinds of issues that you just are dealing with that besides your patients. Plus, you know, they're not happy because they're overwhelmed because you're telling them, hurry, hurry, we got to get more patients in. We're not going to. So, you know, I feel bad for the docs and say, hey, take a, I had to take a leap of faith. I, I remember when I resigned, I thought, what the heck am I doing? I mean, I'm going to take a pay cut, but I'm like, I've taken a pay cut before. I've, I've struggled. I'm, I'm used to that. But if I can be home and have coffee with my wife in the morning or throw the ball with my dog and do a Zoom meeting with my patient rather than driving an hour a day. Yeah, I'm good with that. So I think it's, it's really stepping in, looking at your value, and then make it so that you are something that's valuable to the patient. Because if you're a jerk to patients, guess what? You're going to go broke doing direct primary care. Yeah. You have to really provide the level of care. Like, you know, There's people who go to Nordstrom and they go, okay, I expect that level of care. For me, I'll go to Walmart. I'm cool with that. I don't need someone helping me in a certain way. So it just depends on what you value at some point, right? And, you know, there, there, there's an expression I just saw it the other day again. And it says basically, you know, healthy people have tons of dreams and tons of wishes. But if you're sick, you have one wish and that's it, right? You want to get healthy. You don't want to be in pain. You don't want to be miserable. You don't want to be depressed. You don't want to be shooting insulin. Yeah. So that's when you say, well, is it worth it? Heck yeah, it's worth it. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't imagine, you know, being part of the system anymore. For me personally, as a provider, because if I'm happy, guess what? I'm going to spend more time with you, and I'm going to we're going to have a good interaction. If I'm a jerk and I'm stressed out, I'm tense, and I'm going through a divorce, and I'm drinking every night to to cope with life. Guess what? I may not be the best doctor for you at some point, you know. Yeah. And and that's what's what's important. We build those relationships, and when you have that relationship, and someone calls and they know who you are, like one of my patients, she got she 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 had problems with her old doc, but the doc's like, I've only seen you twice, and you're you're asking for this thing. Her dad was, as a matter of fact, her dad was sick with pancreatic cancer and dying. And she said, can I get a little something for my nerves? I'm stressed out. I can't sleep. And he said, no, you know, do a Zoom meeting with me. So they did a Zoom meeting. He doesn't show up for 45 minutes. She sat there and then he never showed up. So she hung up and called the office and said, hey, he never came on. They're like, you know what? The doctor's upset that you're, you're giving a hard time. We need you to come to the office. And so he says, look, you're drug seeking. And she goes, my dad's like never. I'm sorry about your dad. No, no compassion. So she sought me out and came to me. She was a patient from my old practice. But you, you start seeing like, gosh, dang it, have we lost our humanity at some point? You know, and what matters to be able to come in and someone can hear you and say, gosh, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. Tell me about it. Let's talk for a minute, right? As human beings, not yeah. okay. Look at my watch. Okay, hurry up, get this story over because I got five people waiting. <laughs> it's sad, so but if, that's the way it is. So is there? Uh... Is there a like a support organization for physicians and other healthcare providers to kind of take an off ramp out of the system? Is there a formal uh, a formal support organization, or it, yeah, where would a, where would folks look? There's a bunch of them, like DPC Alliance. But I'll tell you, you know, uh, there are several docs who reached out to me, and I said, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing this," and they're like, "Brian, jump, do it." We never look back. Here's I go. Tell me what your life's like. What your how how it is and uh you know and really i had to reassess and go okay is my motivation financial right is it and so when i resigned that day you know i had gone in I, and i was fed up i just got back from boca raton as a matter of fact and i was getting killed with i was working till i was getting up at three in the morning to get to work and getting home at 10 30 at night and not seeing my wife because she was asleep and when i left and when i got there i'm like what the, and my neighbors used to tease me and say hey brian you're lucky you never have to wash your car I said, why is that? He said, we never see it during the day. It's always at night. <laughs> it's always in the dark. You don't have to wash your car. I was like, wow. And they, so they would tease me because I was never there. But I realized being never there is not very good, right? Yeah. So, you know, you start realizing and I, and I walked in and 
it happened to be when Kobe Bryant had just died too at the same time. Yeah. And, and so I walked in and, you know, my, I said, look, this isn't working. I need a full-time nurse practitioner, someone to take a little of the burden off. I can't see all the, I, and my, and it was never about making more money. It was like my patients in need. I can't say, well, I'm taking off half day today. Right. Cause I, yeah. you know, if you did, where are you going to put all the other patients? I mean, it was just always over, over scheduled. So, you know, I realized Kobe would give up every dollar he had to spend another day with his wife and kids and all those things. And, and you realize like what really matters at some point I had to say what really matters. Okay. Is my health important to me? Yes. And if it is, I can't preach to the, to you and say, Hey, you got to, you know, watch your stress level, but I'm stressed all every day and I'm in a hurry and I'm rushed. And I know the effects on the physiology clearly from studying this stuff. So you go, okay, is it worth it? You know, is it worth it for me to take a pay cut to be able to have coffee with my wife this morning? Yeah. It's worth it. I'll take a pay cut, right? I, I don't need to make that. What am I doing with that extra money anyways? Because I'm not home to enjoy it. What the heck am I doing? But yeah. it was really, I was motivated to help the patients. And if someone's in need, I'd see them. But there's a big difference. You know, I had over 2,000 patients in my old practice. Now I have about oh, 300. God. So if you, if you think about just yeah. the numbers, you go, okay, if you have, and that's about average in 2,000 patients is not an unusual for a primary care doc. So you have 2,000 patients. Okay. You have to do a physical on those 2,000 patients. How many physicals is that? Is that a day, right? Right, you're doing five or six Holy physicals a day, so that's five or six hours of your day just doing physicals. Now, if I have 300, I could do one physical a day and still see all my patients. is no big deal. It's not a it's it, it's not a huge deal. So people would have to schedule out nine months for a physical. Now it's like, hey, you want a physical? When do you want to do it? Tomorrow? Okay, come on in. <laughs> Done. Like they need to get a surgery clearance. Like you know, I mean, you know, people, you don't have nowhere to put them, so you have to force force it all the time. So. It really gets to the point, and I'm telling you from experience, is you start resenting the patient, like, go somewhere else. I just don't, right. I don't have, to, I have too many patients. I don't want to see you. But now it's like, hey, I appreciate you. Come on in. You know, you're paying for this. You know, call me at 10 at night. Okay, we could talk. But people don't abuse that, but I'm here for that in case you need me. I'm yeah. here. Yeah. You know, that, that makes a huge difference. Well, you are a, an extraordinarily effective advocate for for physicians, primary care physicians in particular, to to make that change. Um, let's talk about contact, how folks learn more about, uh, about Dr. Brian Lenskis and, uh, learn a little bit more about maybe, uh, making the change from the, the treadmill model to the direct patient care model. How yeah, do folks get, a, get, the, get that information? Yeah, there's so many resources out there. I'll tell you, for me, it was really the other docs doing it. Direct primary care, there's DPC Alliance. There's all kinds of different direct primary care groups. And I'll tell you, when I was said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, so many doctors said, hey, let me help you. Let me tell you what I'm doing. Now, it wasn't like like Philip was saying, not this secret. Like, I, I have this secret formula. I'm not going to share it with you, right? It's like, hey, it works. Go ahead and do it. You know, so they're happier and they have time to talk to you because everyone else is stressed out and doesn't have time to help you, you know? So in medicine, it's become like that where everyone's watching for themselves. So to track me down, I'm, I'm usually on Twitter at Brian Lenskis, B-R-I-A-N-L-E-N-Z-K-E-S. Um, and that's generally where I'm at. And my, my website's uh, lowcarbmdsandiego, all one word, dot com. And that's my practice uh, uh, website. And also lowcarbmd, which I do with Tro, Kalasian, and Jason Fung. And um, also um, Life's Best Medicine. They're both lifebestmedicine.com. It you know, has all of our, our old ones. And we're on all the stuff that you guys are on, like you know Spotify and, and all the, the apps, iTunes and all that the, for the podcast. All right. Well, we will we'll, we'll, uh, include those links in the show note for the, uh, for the podcast. Phil, I'm, 
I'm blown away. This is a great guest. I'm really grateful you brought him on. And it gives me a little bit more insight into uh, behind the scenes in the, the medical business. And, and has convinced me, uh, not that I needed any more persuading, but has convinced me that the path that, that I chose to get out of that mess as a patient was the right path. You want to wrap it up for us today? Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, can't wait to uh, have another steak with you in person sometime, Brian. And uh, hope everyone enjoyed this conversation and many, many other great ones to come in the upcoming weeks. All righty. Thanks well, for having for- me. It's an honor. And, and, you know, your your patients and your listeners are blessed to have you. You know, you're doing some great work and, you know, oh, I'm, I'm jealous of Jack. He has a great radio voice, man. <laughs> Yep. Face made for radio. That's me. All right. For uh, Dr. Brian Linskist and uh, the show's host, Dr. Philip Ovedia, I'm Jack Heald. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Go ahead and uh, click that subscribe button so you get notified when we drop a new podcast. That happens every Tuesday at midnight, every Monday at midnight. I never know which one it is. I know that on Tuesday at 12 a.m. it drops. It must be Tuesday morning. Um you can follow Dr. O on Twitter at iFixHearts, and you can take your own online uh, metabolic health assessment quiz at iFixHearts.co. I encourage all of you to do that. And if you are a physician and listen to this and thought, I need to do this, check the show notes. We're going to have all that information in there. We'll talk to you all next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.